0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, I've got good news. It's the birth of Jesus, and John is... Basically swearing a deposition. And we say in our culture today, if you're standing in front of a court of law, you'll say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you'll put your hand on the Bible, and you'll you know, you swear by your right hand. And what the beginning of the Gospel of John is telling us, and if you look back at your bulletin, or maybe, David, you could pull up that first slide from First John 1, 1 to 3. And there's an amazing statement here of what he's actually saying. He's saying, that which was from the beginning, and then he says this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hand, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowships with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says here four times, we've seen Him, we've looked upon Him, we've seen Him, we've seen Him. Twice, He says, we've heard Him, we've heard Him. And then the kicker is, we've touched Him. Matter of fact, He touched all of our toes, every single one when He cleaned them and He washed our feet. They saw Jesus touch people, touch a leper, touch a man that was blind, actually, you know, spit. They saw that Jesus was completely human. And when he rose from the dead, he purposely ate fish. And he said, no ghost does this. You know, touch me and see that he's fully human. And there's a famous quote by one of the early church fathers, and it goes like this. And it says, that which, is not, that which has not been assumed has not been healed. That which has not been assumed has not been healed. What did that mean? That means that what they were thinking through was that you are not saved by imitation. You're saved by imputation. So a lot of, you might be thinking tonight, well, I'm saved by imitation. I follow Jesus, I imitate him, and if I can be like him, then I can go to heaven. Doesn't that sound like Christianity? No, it's not. Christianity is, is actually says we are to follow his example, but that's not what saves you. You're not saved by imitation. Matter of fact, I think we would say if any of you guys have ever seen greatness, it actually doesn't inspire you to do great things sometimes. I saw Phil Keggy playing concert and I wanted to take my guitar and break it. I've seen Bubba Watson hit a golf ball down in Bethesda, and, he, and the sound that it hit when it hit his driver and how far it went, this was after he'd won the Masters, and I thought, I think I just want to get rid of my golf clubs forever because there's no way in the world, even though he's, you know, left-handed, I'm left-handed, maybe there's hope, you know. There's not hope, believe me. <laughs> like, when you see true greatness, I mean, if you saw Serena in her day serve in volley, it, it, it would want to be like, I think I just want to put my tennis racket away. I don't even want to pull it out. It's just when you truly see something really incredible, you actually realize I'll never arrive at that. Well, that's the idea here is that we're not saved by imitation. We're saved by imputation. The idea is that Adam represented you by imputation. How you doing? He represented all of us. and In Adam's fall, we sinned all and we're all going to die. And so, Jesus comes as the second Adam. And that which is not assumed if he's not fully flesh. If he only has one mind and it's a God mind, he doesn't have a human mind. Well, then he can't save your human mind. You're not saved in your mind. Oh well, that that part's not gonna be saved. If he didn't take a human will, then your will can't be saved. If he didn't take a human liver, your liver couldn't be saved. If he didn't take a human kidney, your kidney couldn't be saved. And so on and so on. That which is not assumed has not been healed. He has to represent you fully. And that's what John is saying. Is that which was from, look at all the witches. And not W-I-T-C-H, but W-H-I-C-H. Those little pronouns six times in three verses. He just keeps going, that which, 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 which. That which was from the beginning. This isn't saying the beginning of John's life or any other apostle's life or the beginning of the gospel or the beginning of creation. No, that which was from the beginning. That which always was. He's telling you, listen about this Jesus. He is the life. The life, verse two, was made manifest or revealed or appeared. It was an epiphany. The life was made manifest. And the life that comes and is revealed is the eternal life. Jesus doesn't just give you eternal life, which he does, but he is the eternal life. These, these little um, uh, definite articles are very, very important in the original language. He is the life. He is the eternal life. He was from the beginning. He's always been. He's always had life. And John is saying, which we heard which we've seen with our eyes which we've looked upon we've touched with our hands this this life was revealed it took on flesh we've seen it we testify to it we proclaim to you this life was made manifest it appeared so that and he appeared so that in order that we could have fellowship with him with the father and with his son and then he finally names him who is this person He's Jesus Christ, and he's writing this so that John's joy and our joy would be complete, that we would know him. And so if you think about it, of course, this is absolutely unfathomable stuff. I mean, I try to talk to people about what's the closest person that you've ever come to that was somebody truly significant and you felt really low in their presence. You know, I love watching these stories on TV where somebody's great and kind of, you know, veils themselves, you know, the undercover boss or celebrity undercover boss. I came across this story recently with Queen Elizabeth passing this past September. I'm sure many of you heard this story or saw the interview with her Royal Protection Officer Richard Griffin, and he shared a true story about the Queen when they were on vacation in Scotland and a small group of American tourists showed up at the Balmoral Castle, her estate house in Scotland, And the queen liked to have a picnic at the estate, and around lunchtime, he says, these two hikers were coming towards us, these Americans, and the queen would always stop and say hello, and it was two Americans on a walking holiday, and it was clear from that moment, he says, that we first stopped, that they didn't recognize the queen, which is fine. The American gentleman was telling the queen where he was from, and, and I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to her majesty, and where do you live? And she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. Holiday home, yeah, castle. How often have you been coming up here, he asked the queen. She said, well, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the cogs ticking, he says. He says, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the queen. And as quick as a flash, she said, Well, I haven't, but Dick here, he's met with her regularly. And so the guy says to me, You've met the queen? What's she like? And he says, Because I've known her a long time, I knew I could pull her leg. I said, Oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. So the next thing I know, this guy comes around, he puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the queen, and says, Could you take a picture of the two of us? So anyways, we swapped places, I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, we waved goodbye, and Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to their friends in America, and hopefully someone will tell him who I am. (laughs) I mean, here they're in the presence of the Queen and they don't know it. And yet, what we're told all throughout the Gospel and in 1 John here, as we've been repeating tonight, was the life was made manifest, their life was revealed. It would appeared. It's the same word as appeared in, in the original language, and so he says, you know that he appeared. Why did he appear? In order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He was perfect, and that which has not been assumed has not been healed, but he came to take away sins by being the perfect sacrifice. And by imputation, I said you're saved by imputation and not by imitation, by his righteous life, his perfect life from conception all the way from the cradle to the cross, he was perfect. And he accumulates a perfect righteousness, a perfect track record to please the Father on our behalf so that his righteousness would be imputed to those that believe in him so that we could stand before God whole and complete. And we're told that the reason the Son of God appeared or manifested itself was to destroy the works of the devil. Because in the beginning, the first Adam didn't do so well when he squared up with the devil. And he ate of this tree, and we've been eating of it ever since. And we've all experienced the deception. We've all experienced the pain of sin. Jesus never did in himself but he took our sin upon himself and experienced the pain of God's punishment upon him so that he could shield us from it. In this, the love of God was revealed among us or made manifest that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one who would take away God's wrath, take away the punishment. There has to be a satisfaction for sin, a payment for sin. And Jesus has done that for us. And so John is telling us that this is the only way to the Father is through the Son. The Son comes and reveals the Father, and the way we know the Father's love for us is that he sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And this grand miracle, I mean, and some of you might be here tonight thinking, this sounds hooey. Well, let me me remind you of what C.S. Lewis said in his great book on miracles, in the chapter on the grand miracle, he just says this. He says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness or credibility of the miracle itself cannot obviously be judged by the same standard. If the thing happened, it was the central of the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. But since it happened once and only once, it is by Hume's, David Hume's standards, infinitely improbable. But then the whole history of the earth has only happened once, and it's therefore incredible. Hence the difficulty which weighs upon Christian and atheist alike of estimating the probability of the incarnation. It's like asking whether the existence of nature herself is intrinsically probable. So then he says this, how do we know that it, it, he says basically does it fit? He says let's suppose we possess parts of a novel or a symphony. And somehow now we have a newly discovered piece of a manuscript and, and says, this is the missing part of the work. This is the chapter in which the whole plot of the novel really turned. This is the main theme of the symphony. Our business would be to see whether the passage if admitted to the central place, which the discoverer claimed for it, did actually illuminate all the parts. We had already seen and pull them together. Nor should we be likely to go very far wrong, he says. This new passage if spurious, however, attracted it looked at the first glance, would become harder and harder to reconcile with the rest of the work, the longer we considered the matter. But if it were genuine, then at the very fresh hearing of the music, or every fresh reading of the book, we should find it settling down, making itself more at home, and eliciting significance from all sorts of details in the whole work which we had hitherto neglected. Even though the new central chapter or main theme contained great difficulties in itself, we should still think it genuine, provided that it continually removed difficulties elsewhere. Something like this we must do with the doctrine of the Incarnation, is what Lewis is saying. He says, here, instead of a synphy or a novel, we have the whole mass of our knowledge. The credibility will depend on the extent to which the doctrine, if accepted, can illuminate and integrate the whole mass, the whole rest of the details of why we exist. It is less important that the doctrine itself should be fully comprehensible. We believe that the sun is in the sky at midday in summer, not because we can clearly see the sun. In fact, we can't. It would blind us, but because we can see everything else because the sun is shining at midday. You see, he says, in this Christian story, God descends, and he descends to reascend. He comes down down from the heights of absolute being and time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right to recapitulate into the womb, ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring up the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great, complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must disappear under the load because he has incredibly straightens his back and then marches off with this whole mass swaying on his shoulders. You see, this is what Christ has done. He has come into this world to save us not by imitation, but by imputation to be our righteousness, to be the perfect life so that we could be accepted before the Father. And he has come to restore humanity and to restore us in fellowship with God, but also to one another. And so he does come to bring this peace on earth. And yet we still live in a world where there's much hate, much disappointment, and we still have this thing of death and sin. And yet we're told here in 1 John, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, that he is going to appear again. He's coming back again. He's going to make everything new. He's going to fix everything. But in this Advent, he does come to break into our lives and to change us from the inside out. And we will not be perfect on this side. We still have to face death. And it was something that Jesus wept at when he, when he saw Lazarus in the tomb. It was something that he began to shed drops of blood as he thought about his own death. And death is something that we have to reconcile with. But Jesus has come to overcome death by being raised from the dead. And he raises us up with him. And there is truly eternal life. He is the eternal life who's come from God down to this earth, and he's coming back again. Do you know him? Is he your joy? Is he your peace? This is the greatest gift that David was talking about. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see, to love, to be in awe of what you have done. Lord, the greatest uh, dissension, and the greatest humility, we give thanks. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming again. We do look forward for this next Advent, this next coming, when all will be made new. We thank you that we will be returned to the garden and there'll be full newness of everything. We look forward to that day. But in the now, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to love one another as you have loved us, that your love would be perfected in us and among us. But we ask in your name, amen.